Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. This is a special episode of Cold Steel we recorded on COVID and the impact it's had on surgeons across the country. We were lucky enough to be joined by two trauma surgeons and intensivists who are actually repeat guests on the show. Dr. Murad Hamid is a trauma surgeon and intensivist at the Vancouver General Hospital, and Dr. Neil Perry is a trauma surgeon and intensivist at the London Health Sciences Centre in London, Ontario. We went over how surgeons have been adapting to the COVID crisis and some basics of COVID management. We hope that you find this useful and we hope that you all stay safe. Dr. Samid and Perry, thank you again for joining us on such short notice. Um, you're, I mean, it's exciting in the fact that you're the first repeat guest we've had on Cold Steel. Um, however, certainly the circumstances are, are tough. Uh, we thought you, you two in particular were in a perfect position given your critical care practice and your hospital leadership positions and, and also functions uh, functioning as trauma surgeons to talk a little bit about how your hospitals and your healthcare systems are dealing with COVID uh, and maybe how your how your colleagues are dealing with COVID, and then I think we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts of of both uh, the epidemiology as well as um, um, maybe a, some short cursory comments on on ventilator management. So welcome and, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. I, I guess let, let's start off really broad then and just ask you guys, how, how have things changed at your hospital? Um, you know, have we canceled elective surgeries? How, how are you dealing with with all of these uh, issues at this crazy time? And maybe more, we can start with you. Yeah, uh, we've had a big, pretty big transformation in the way we've been um, approaching patient care. Um, and uh, I could never have imagined that a viral pneumonitis would uh, disrupt the um, entire operations of an organization so profoundly, but uh, everything seems to be changed, and um, general surgery and trauma have had a big uh, role in that transformation. So, uh, yeah, you're right, Chad. We, uh, in order to um, create capacity, uh, we instantly stopped doing um, elective surgery. So our OR activity reduced substantially, probably to about 40% uh, of its baseline activity. And... Um, that actually gave us a little bit of breathing room to um, not only discharge patients and uh, drop our sentences, but also to um, readjust uh, our own call coverage uh, to create a bit of surge capacity within our uh, attending call schedule and also uh, to um, realign our residents. We got all of our residents back from um, their uh, community-based rotations and rotations around the province um, to, um, to the main uh, COVID site. Um, in the city, so uh, the, the, the decreased activity uh, gave us a little bit of capacity to react and then to create, in terms of creating surge capacity. But, but that's taken many, many, many hours of uh, meetings and phone calls and text messages. And so, Chad, or um, Morat, how, how many ORs are you guys running a day from what you would normally do? Can you give me like a, a BGH? Uh, 
Yeah, uh, so normally we run at the, we have two sites, Vancouver General Hospital and UBC, um, mm -hmm. and uh, UGH runs about 19 rooms every day, um, and uh, that's gone down uh, to about five, uh, five to six rooms uh, a day. But that changes almost from day to day, and we've been warned that uh, um, our allocation to services uh, could change um, just on a moment's notice. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, uh, general surgery has uh, three rooms a week um, in our main uh, Vancouver General Hospital OR, and then three rooms a week um, at UBC, which is more of our ambulatory hospital. So we still have uh, slowed down limited access to slates, but uh, we can get uh, scheduled surgery in. How about you, Yeah, so I think all the things you mentioned initially has been the same in London. Um, yeah, the landscape is... Like everybody, it's it's completely upside down and changed. Um, and and we about two weeks ago went down to running at about forty percent. So from seventeen eighteen hours at the Victoria Hospital and about fifteen hours at University Hospital, we all went down to about forty percent. And then just this coming Monday, we're going down to about a quarter. So we're probably going to run four rooms at each site, um, and then our out more outpatient hospital will probably run about two or three rooms. Um, so two eMERGE rooms and then some scheduled urgent uh, limb-threatening cancer-type surgery. So it's been, um, yeah, it's been a massive change, clearly. Has this, has this reduction been in response to a surge of new cases, or are you still sort of anticipating? Yeah, yeah no, it's more the latter. So it's interesting, um, and I think it's probably going to be similar across the country, how... You know, one initially may think that, well, COVID, what, what is, what's the role for surgery with COVID um, and this huge pandemic? But I think it's huge. Um, one, obviously, from what we have to deliver every, on an everyday basis, things are still going to occur, so we have to be very mindful of that. But just from the, the leadership point of view, um, uh, I can say that I think, again, I can't be too subjective about this or objective about it, I mean, but, you know, I, I can say that, you know, in our uh, in our system, I think the surgery leadership has been been very good, and quite honestly, has been several days ahead of the hospital administration in decision making. So even for us um, cutting back our wars, we brought that to them. Uh, and so when when it's a a group of surgeons that say, "Listen, we need to do this because it's the right thing to do to prepare." Um, for such a pandemic, uh, it, that's a that's a big statement, and I don't think really the hospital would initially realize what a big statement that was. Yeah, I, I love that idea. That I think when when surgeons uh, devise uh, their own solutions and come forward to them, I think that works so well. Uh, people are waiting to hear uh, what we say and, and how we respond. And one interesting thing I think is coming with this is that. Uh, as, as general surgeons and trauma surgeons in particular, I think we're used to working in uh, times of crisis, um, and so we're used to making uh, decisions under conditions of uncertainty, and then and then uh, refining those decisions as new information comes in. I think that that mindset kind of helps in this situation. Absolutely, uh, and, and and even in the concept of triaging severity of patients, so like. In our division, we pool all of our cases, all of our scheduled cancer cases, for example, um, to try to figure out 
within our group, um, how do we triage someone at our time does come available. I know Chad, you thought a lot about this uh, because of doing such a high volume of, uh, of cancer surgery. Yeah, it's hard. It's, I mean, it's, as we've talked about, it's, it's hard to communicate with those patients that, that are at home with cancers that may or may not leave the respectability window in some of our more aggressive tumors. Those are hard conversations, and um, they're hard on the individual level, and they're hard on the system, and, um, you know, it certainly creates uh, moments and, and days of, um, of frustration, for sure, you know, and mostly for the, for the patients, of course. I can only imagine what they're what they're going through, but you're right; it's it's got to be done at some level. Um, and you know, and I think. So go ahead, Jed. Obviously, they you know the, the corollary for for all three of us, of course, are are uh, you know our, our other love is, is trauma and injury care, and I'm curious how how that's going in both London and Vancouver. And the reason I ask is I just had come off of our our trauma service here in Calgary on on Friday morning, this past Friday morning, and. It was probably the busiest week I've had here in over a decade. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it represented really an inner city American center. I mean, there was half a dozen gunshots uh, every day. There was more than that in stab wounds. There was tons of indigent people on it. I, I don't know whether that was from just a sort of a, it's a pandemic, let's get crazy uh, point of view, quite honestly, or whether it's because the social services that these marginalized on the fringe type patients that we we see have had to pull back as well and, and they're sort of left on their own. I, I don't know, but it's certainly something palpable and, 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 uh, and real had changed. Yeah. I just want to, one comment just back to the, the cancer side. I think, you know, it, it, it has been exceedingly difficult and I think it, you know, sometimes the, the public may not understand, but I think it's, it should be very clear that the physicians and the surgeons are still doing their best to advocate for this. Yes, unfortunately, given the circumstances, times surgery time will ha will will be delayed. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not without the surgeons uh, really advocating hard for this and trying to make time out of out of nothing. It's very very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I think as surgeons, um, we. We probably have, have to take a longer view than our emergency operations command centers because they're very focused on the immediate goal of um, creating capacity for COVID-19 patients. But I think what we also know is that once the pandemic passes, when it will pass, we will have this big rebound of cases that need to be done. Um, yeah, how are we going to find the capacity for this, right? There's all sorts of different things to think of. Exactly. And so I think that means that while we prepare for the current crisis, we also have to have an eye on the horizon to say, when what's it look, you know, look like? How are we going to handle that um, that rebound and care for the population the best we can um, when we do start to get access to the OR? How will we yeah. prioritize our patients, bring them in, be efficient? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and as you, as you mentioned, it has to be very dynamic, too, with the OR. It can change from day to day, from week to yeah. week, as far as, exactly. yes, okay, today it looks... You know, things are fairly under control, blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we may be able to get a few more cases and we'll see how it goes up and, and, and same goes the other way, unfortunately, also. Yeah, and I, I, that has to come from us. I don't think that can come from a hospital administrator who, who doesn't necessarily know what we do. Yeah. One of the things that obviously the, the group of us on this call have the privilege of, of doing is, is dealing with emergency general surgery cases, trauma cases, and cancer cases. Those are obviously by definition... Three of the most urgent um, 
categories that we all deal with. But how, how to, you know, to speak to other types of surgeons, and I'm sure there's orthopedic surgeons and plastic surgeons and, and gynae surgeons listening to this as well. How have you guys found um, those folks that have been, maybe don't do trauma orthopedics or don't do, um, you know, emergency gynae work, um, how have they been dealing with it at, at your hospital? Because that's a really tough position too. I think all in all, um, the division chiefs that I've spoken with have been outstanding, to be honest. You know, um, the arthroplasty group, you know, that would operate 24-7 if they could, um, have said, listen, we can't do this right now. And they stopped. And it's, it's, it's incredible. You know, I think that, that speaks just for, we understand the magnitude of that statement. But I don't think really anybody else is not a surgeon that really can understand that. Um, but they've been, you know, they've all come forward with this as well. You know, uh, one thing I've kind of felt like watching all of this is that, you know, uh, our personalities as surgeons isn't the type that can just sit on the bench, right? Like, I don't think any of us yeah. growing up playing on sports ever were content <laughs> being those people on the bench. But yet, I think, part of our leadership as you have both all of you have said is actually being able to say yeah this one our role maybe right now is just to sit on the bench and that's very hard to, i think as surgeons to do and i think that shows a lot of leadership that everyone across the country has been able to do that Let, let's uh, tr transition into a little bit of, of specifics about covid if it's okay with you guys well, Morad, are you treating your trauma and emergency general surgery patients like they may have uh, COVID across the board, or how are you nuancing that? Uh, this has been a really uh, big journey, Chad. Uh, first, uh, you know, first, when it first came down uh, the pipeline, um, information about COVID was suggesting that we screen patients that are symptomatic or have some type of travel history or infectious contact. Um, and that's fine, but... Um, uh, then it sort of came to light that uh, there's uh, a median 5.1-day incubation period when patients um, do have a fairly high viral load but are not yet symptomatic, so there's this long pre-symptomatic phase. And I think that pre-symptomatic phase is one of the reasons why the um, pandemic has been so hard to control, because patients are, or people are infecting each other without knowing that they have symptoms. So uh, I think I, I saw one model where they, they thought that about 12% of uh, transmissions were from pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic individuals. So, um, and I know that in um, nursing homes and in other healthcare facilities, um, that's one of the reasons why um, the disease can spread like wildfires because people are limited their screening to symptomatic individuals. So we've taken the position, at least for now, um, that we're assuming that general surgery and trauma patients that are, have COVID positive, are COVID positive until proven otherwise. Um, and we're advocating for PCR testing. Now, PCR testing has been hard to get sometimes, and the turnaround times are getting better, but what had not been perfect. And we've also learned uh, that PCR testing is not 100% uh, sensitive. In fact, we know that about, sure. it's about like 70% sensitive in some theories. So, so then what we try to do to try to mitigate that uh, sensitivity is combine it with a CT scan of the chest. Uh, and we, we've seen that the pneumonitis can sometimes appear on CT uh, before the PCR turns positive. So that's been our strategy. Um, 
I think I don't see what you do, but the idea is to advocate for PCR testing everybody that's going to the OR, and if they haven't had a CT test, try to get the CT test as well, and that gives us some confidence about um, whether someone got the, got the um, humanitis or not. That's an interesting comment. We have a, um, a post-Whipple patient on our service now who developed the, the clinical uh, concern for COVID. The chest x-ray and the subsequent CT scan was is classic, straight out of the Lancet. Um, and uh, the test was negative. The initial test was negative. Subsequently, it's been positive. So that's, that's a real-world concern for sure. Wow. We, um, yeah, have you guys heard of any teams getting infected yet? I, I heard that there's a team at Columbia, a transplant team that got uh, exposed and some people got transmitted, but I, I haven't heard, I haven't confirmed that. Uh, I heard that as well, but haven't heard of any in Canada yet from surgeons. Yeah, so far so good, I think. We do a similar thing with regards to our acute care uh, or emergency general surgery patients. Um, they're all treated as if they're potential or positive, whether they pass or fail their screen. Um, and Emil, I guess, will probably lead into this as to what we do up in the operating room. So, you know, if they're on the ward and they're uh, coming up to the OR, we're not doing any aerosol gener generating medical procedures, then we can all wear enhanced uh, droplet precautions. Um, and this would be interesting to find out what, what you guys do as well in your ORs. You know, we've gone from the gamut, as, as Murad was saying initially, we would, you know, before we really knew about the big lag time that they can have or they're asymptomatic, we would treat our, our, our patients that screen negative. We would, in the OR, we would just do our enhanced uh, drop the precautions. And now we've switched to our enhanced aerosol uh, precautions. So N95s and the equivalent for, for everybody. So any OR that we're running now, the we'll do a little huddle ahead of time with the anesthesia, nursing, um, surgery, OR aids, RTs if necessary, up front. Everybody should delineate the roles, see who's going to be in the OR, limit personnel, limit people getting in and out of the OR, and then uh, proceed on with surgery um, with everybody. Uh, with their N95s, we try to intubate the patient um, in our rooms. Uh, we just the anesthesia and minimal personnel. Usually, surgery waits outside and comes in with after talking with our microbiology, infectious uh, disease, and facilities. After 10 minutes, and come into the OR, proceed on. We're still treating surgery as possibly aerosol generating, so that's why everybody in the room is wearing their N95s. Um, we do not have any negative pressure ORs, and what we've been told, and this, I'd like to get your opinions on this as well, but we've been told from our local experts with the positive pressure ORs that we use, where the air cycles between 20 to up, up to 30 times uh, within the hour, um, that it's actually, given that this is, is mainly a drop ball, is a droplet uh, precaution type disease, although with the uh, AGMPs it, it can obviously be aerosolized. That that's that the it's sufficient enough. Um, I don't know what your what your thoughts or what you guys do in your ORs. Yeah, um, you know that that's that's exactly right. I, I'm so happy to hear that. Like uh, how you're approaching it, I think that for all of us, the, the safety of our of our teams and particularly our residents is something that keeps us up at night. And so just erring on the side of um, 
enhanced airborne precautions for potential aerosol generating procedures is, uh, is, I think it's a great principle uh, for now. And uh, we follow pretty much exactly what you said. So there's a, there's a kind of a two-tier approach, I think. First of all, kind of in incorporating social distancing or clinical distancing, and in our case, mm -hmm. it's keeping surgeons and residents out of the hospital uh, as much as possible, cycling them in when needed, um, reducing the size of our uh, reducing the size of our teams that are assessing patients and reducing the size of our teams that are coming into the operating room. Um, so that's the social distancing side. And then on the personal protective equipment side, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we do the same thing uh, as, uh, as you guys, we strive to do that. Um, we did get a little bit of question about, like, is laparoscopy aerosol generating? And placing mm -hmm. chest tubes or doing a laparotomy aerosol generating? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to know your position on that. My position is that we should assume it is until we have data proving otherwise. Yeah, I think we've gone along that road as well. I think, again, I mean, our, our local experts in microbiology and infectious disease are, are fantastic. Again, I'm not sure, but they totally understand the OR culture scenario, the break, what we exactly do all the time. And and uh, it can easily go from one non-aerosol generating medical procedure to being aerosol generating. Uh, in certain yeah, certain yeah, certain, totally. certain, certain, certain sense, like a chest tube and that type of thing. So we would do the same thing. I think the, the issue with laparoscopy also is, you know, not me, but the, the, the current generation of, of residents that are just coming out are, you know, they've done everything laparoscopically. Yeah. If they can do it as quickly, then I think here time is really of the essence because our access to the OR is severely limited now. So if you're going to take a long time to do a subtotal colectomy and you want to do it laparoscopically rather than doing it open where you could potentially, certainly at least in my hands, I can do it faster open, but it all depends, right? So I think that's another aspect to think about with laparoscopy and and uh, uh, and this, this smoke generating thing. Well, let, let me take that one step further, Neil. You know, open versus laparoscopic for some procedures, as you point out, is a, is a real-world question right now in the here and now. But the American College sort of dropped a recommendation and then backed out of it shortly. Yeah. Before. Talking about you know, <laughs> the, essentially indications of treating patients oh with gosh. appendicitis with antibiotics only, same thing with cholecystitis. Yeah. What are you guys doing at your institutions? Have you changed your indications at all? Are you, are you going... No. To the, to the old days of doing that? No. I think that if you can get someone in and out of hospital within 24 hours, that's yeah. the way it should be. Rather than sticking a drain in something, having people come and check the drain, there goes your, your social isolation that needs to be done. Having someone on IV antibiotics, you need a nurse to come in. Yeah, it, you know, I'm sure we could get into behind the behind scenes of all of this, uh, but, you know, the fact that they came out with the change so quickly, um, Let's just, I think it's safe to say people were in uproar about it. <laughs> what about you guys? Yeah, that was a, that was a big 180. One of my, one of our residents, Grand Susan, sent me the first version and I was pretty surprised. And then within a day, sent me the second version. And I, I feel like maybe the ACS was trying to, um, uh, anticipate the worst case scenario where we have no yeah. access to the operating room. I, I think um, you're right. I and think then, you're right. And I think the reality is that most places do have somewhat limited access and can triage cases in there. Um, and so I think they, then they came up with a more of a nuanced document to say, yes, you can do uh, MIS procedures and you can do colies and acnes and in addition to uh, per biscuits and 
And you can even do procedures that if you do them, you can keep patients out of hospital better. So Cassandra Billy Collie suddenly yeah. appears on that list. Uh, so I think the second document is is probably more common sense and probably reflects the reality that we do have some um, access to the OR. And, and uh, Chad, and Nancy, you were point earlier about some services having, uh, and Amir mentioned that some services are now kind of getting going on the bench, you know, and patiently waiting for the pandemic to subside. With trauma and general surgery, I found that our access has been preserved. So uh, I think that's an acknowledgement of the fact that we do a lot of emergency stuff. Um, and so hopefully as long as that access is preserved, we can get some of these patients through. Preserved, but still decreased overall. Preserved, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the big challenges that I've that it's been hard to deal with for everyone is that we're having to deal with very limited information and have to make really big decisions like you know shutting down the elective awards when we don't really know how long or how hard yeah. this is going to go for and then uh, you know this laparoscopy is a good example treating a, um, a appendicitis and cholecystitis with antibiotics is another good example where you know, for better or worse, we have to make these decisions uh, with very limited information. And it's, it's even on an even broader front, like you can see the things that are getting published in the New England Journal, et cetera, with very small patient populations, very small RCTs are finding their ways into very big journals. And so I'm curious how, you know, all of three of your academic kind of heavyweights as well as in administration, how are you guys dealing with you know, the lack of information, but still having to make decisions to protect um, healthcare workers and the general public? Well, I think uh, that's a good question, Amir. Part, part of it, you know, is, is reflected on what Morad said, and it's, I think it's also part of how we're trained as general surgeons, and I think it's how, you know, you're being trained as a general surgeon, uh, almost as conclusion now. You're trained to, to think in an adaptive way, um, in, in less than sub, you know, in less than optimal or, or essentially suboptimal conditions. And I think that's not just how do you do, you know, a, a tough trauma operation when things are, are going sideways and the patient's trying to bleed. I think that applies to this sort of scenario as well. Um, you're essentially a high-level problem solver day-to-day. Mm-hmm. It's just the problems look different from day-to-day, and this is a classic mm-hmm. example of that, you know. And yeah, you're right. Like, I... I just feel like it's a tidal wave of studies and anecdotal information and podcasts and uh, like WhatsApp chats and you're trying to process all this information. But the one thing that you can cling to, uh, the life raft that we have, is a lot of this is very just basic common sense um, decision-making and uh, even how you you organize your system. um, You know, we know how to do that from our experience with developing surgical systems and developing trauma systems. But even at the bedside, uh, you know, sifting through all the data, um, you know, it can maybe refine uh, you know, 5% of your management, but the other 95% is what we've known to do all, all along with the, going back to the ABCs and basic lung protective ventilation and um, you know, protecting our, our staff. So it's, it's a lot of like, a lot like other things in surgery, it's the first principles really are uh, are, are most of the um, are, are the biggest part of the approach. Yeah, that's, no, it's it's great. Uh, I couldn't have said any better than that. I, I would just say, you know, we all 
try to work with best evidence possible. We try to change our practice that way. You know, we're now in the realm of Twitter-based medicine. It's not really all evidence-based, is it? The, the things that the amount of, of information we get is staggering. And this gets changed to that. I don't know how much is the telephone game. This gets published in these, you know, as you mentioned, here's an RCT of six and it's published in some journal. I don't know what to make of that. Um, and if we step back, I would never change my practice based on that. But people are doing that now. And so I think we have to be very mindful of that. Again, just take a step back to say, really? Hmm. How about that, HM? <laughs> um, that, you know, we, I think that's what we still need to do. And, and again, it's evolving because of the, we don't really know how this, this bug works uh, in a lot of senses. Um, so it will evolve, but we, we have to take a, have a look at it still and have a, a critical eye with things. Yeah, it's going to be interesting a year from now to look back at, at all of this and see what was accurate and what was inaccurate. No doubt. Mm-hmm. If I if I switch up the gears a, a little bit on you guys and just you know point out to our listeners, you know, uh, Amir is in his final year of residency and was supposed to do the Royal College exam oh. this May and June, and then of course yeah, you and Neil are are on that board, and then Morad as a previous program director and as a as a section head in in UBC. Uh, you know, I, I'd say that first of all, it's incredibly stressful for for our fifth years, and just wonder if you guys had any any comments on that or or any thoughts moving forward. I'd like to hear Amir's thoughts on it personally, yeah, just to see yeah. how 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 you, Amir, uh, and your cohort. But you know, I know you guys are in touch with everybody across the country from PGI one to whatever. Um, what what's the sort of what are, what are people thinking? What's the morale like? Well, uh, it obviously was very hard to get that news because I think everyone was sort of hitting their peak. In fact, I think next week was our last week that we were really going to be clinically busy. And then after that, it was, you know, dedicated clinic or study block time. So uh, this was very, very hard for rural college residents um, or, or finally residents across the country, not just in general surgery, but in emergency and anesthesia, anybody who had to take their final exams. Um, I think there's no, like all of us are 100% dedicated to being on the front lines and being there to help out. And I think we we all recognize that we, we bring a lot to the table. Like I don't think anybody knows how to get stuff done in the hospital better than than I do. Like I know exactly who to talk to or you know who's the best at doing what and and i i think that we bring a lot of value to the whole system um i think the frustrating part was we wanted to do that but we're just there's so much uncertainty and uh you know there was a bit of back and forth as to you know it seemed like it was postponed then it was going to be back on then it was postponed again and so that i think added to the frustration a bit i think most of us are kind of resigned at this point to just roll with it i think I think probably most of us um, felt that, you know, this might have been the time to try some new things like try a written exam or uh, like online or or try some other new things given the circumstances. But I think the bottom line is that all of us are a bit resigned to it now and we're uh, focused on how can we best prepare and best help out the hospital and and our colleagues in this in this time period. And I, I, you know, I've talked to a few residents from across the country and uh, I think we're all kind of on that page 
that's a great point. And like I, I know that it is devastating uh, to have this happen. Uh, I'm sure there are opportunities in it, though. Like, and, and I know that everything's going to work out great for your class. Um, but that's a really interesting point you raised about the Royal College. I mean, this is a, I think they're still doing paper-based um, written exams. Yep. And uh, this this would be the year, This out of this crisis, it would be the opportunity to really, like, move into the 21st century with uh, the way that exam is delivered. Yeah, you know, they're so close to doing that, just not close enough. And that's the really tough, tough part for, for this cohort of fifth years, because that is completely in the plan, um, but it's just, it's been a little slow, and it's a real shame. But let, let, let's use that uh, that concept maybe as a as a transition into another macro topic, um, maybe to discuss, which is that clearly, at least I hope, the world's going to change, really in in all all aspects. Some hopefully for the good, and I'm sure some for the bad. Whether it's the economy or so on, everyone's struggling. Uh, there's no doubt. But how do you guys see uh, on the positive side this? pandemic crisis potentially changing the way that we do business or do care or look after people or, or interact um, again at a macro level in our healthcare systems going forward if we look a year or two or three out? I think, uh, Chad, from my perspective, um, I think this crisis has really made us aware of two things. It's made us aware of the constraints of our healthcare system. Um, and the real need to make this uh, a value-based system that's very aware of both quality and cost. Um, but it's also made us very aware of our synergy. Uh, and it's been, um, like Neil alluded to this earlier, and um, Amir, but it's been a pleasure to work with across disciplines to solve problems. Uh, I, I don't know, I have never seen our uh, faculty and residents across all specialties so engaged uh, and uh, so involved in kind of uh, work out solutions and things together. Um, and even within our own division of general surgery, which sometimes has its own subspecialty agendas, people have really come together to uh, try to figure out what's best for, for patient care. Uh, and across the, the province, I've noticed that there's uh, incredible communication between hospitals, and we have a big province and many hospitals, and um, we have an online platform where everybody is contributing online, communicating, exchanging ideas. Um, and so, so yes, the, the, it is a crisis, and we know that our healthcare system is in perpetual crisis, and this has really um, brought some of those into sharper focus, like some of the uh, short, short balls into sharper focus. But they've also shown that uh, we can get together and, uh, and uh, solve problems uh, and, and share ideas and scale ideas, uh, scale good ideas really well um, because we have the technology. And we didn't mention this, but I, and I, I'd love to know what you guys are doing. But we started to use Zoom uh, for all of our uh, all of our meetings and rounds, and we're doing our morning report via Zoom. And it's paradoxically increased the engagement and communication. It's just uh, using um, virtual meetings and virtual care uh, has almost in some ways um, given us new opportunities to communicate. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. Eh? Like I, I guess we all should have bought Zoom stock uh, before this <laughs> crisis. But you know, we we just for as as one minute example, we just conducted our HPB fellowship interviews. We had twelve candidates. We did them all by Zoom. It was half a day. 
uh, and it was a remarkably interesting experience. It was, um, the mechanics were different. The interview was different. Um, the time frame of the interview is different. I wouldn't say good or bad, just truly different. And I think will certainly inform different options and, and, and different ways of doing things, even on that, that small level moving forward. Yeah, I think that is a, you know, there's so many things. It's hard right now to look at this as a glass half full type, type issue, but I think, what Murad has, has mentioned also about the relationships. Um, yeah, we can make things happen. You know, I personally have learned so much from from other people during all of this and how to do things and to do things better. And uh, this remote access for not only that, but for our patient care. Mm-hmm. Um, do we need to, you know, have somebody drive 200 kilometers? It doesn't make any sense just to say, hey, how you doing? Look at this, look at your wound. You know, we can do things. If there's an issue, clearly different, but there, there's so much yeah. that can and change and from that. And suddenly in one week, the healthcare system transitions to seeing those patients 200 yeah. times Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, and we can. So, so as you said before, even just with on the academic side, that the use of the, the remote access has improved the uptake. Well, this may improve access, like actual access to uh, to medicine, to surgery. Uh, by having these remote things for the remote communities, maybe we'll buy back into this again, where it's been all a lot of talk, a lot of talk about remote telehealth and whatnot. And yes, it is being utilized, but still nothing close to its potential. Well, I, I mean, that's just it. You know, Andy Kirkpatrick and I talked on Cold Steel about exactly that. And we felt both yeah. felt a little bit guilty about not driving that to a greater extent, especially when you see the Australians leading the way and you have, you know, the, the trauma serene in Brisbane helping remote guide them under real-time video guidance up in Darwin, for example, to do a a whole bunch of things, including just big run-of-the-mill trauma resuscitations from crashes. Um, And in Calgary, we tried to do that with, we did do that for a while between the foothills and Banff, and that sort of fell away when, you know, the the technology wasn't quite perfect, and uh, there was no no billing code to be able to do that in Alberta, and there still really isn't. Um, some provinces have it, some some it doesn't. But there was enough enough issues there where it sort of faded away. But you know, uh, the opportunity, the the reinvigoration of that of that chase should happen now for sure. Yeah, and you make you bring up a one word there, billing, and and I don't want to get into all of that now. But but that's this is in, now that it's hit North America, where physicians are are more so on a, on a fee for service. Uh, type of billing, whereas certainly in Europe and uh, further east, it's more salary-based, this will create a whole new complexity to this crisis. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I mean, Canada specifically, right? I mean, the vast majority of U.S. physicians are still salaried, but uh, it's an interesting time for for Canadians as well. No doubt. Let's let's transition maybe into some nuts and bolts of uh, of, of COVID specifically. So, um, using the critical care backgrounds, guys, what are your recommendations in terms of besides assuming our emergency patients all have it, you know, precautions and and PPD and so on? What are your comments about basic management, whether that's um, you know I don't know antimicrobial steroids, hydrochloroquine, ventilator thoughts, and so on. So I, I would just say from seeing the patients, I haven't seen any 
I haven't looked after had to look after any COVID positive patients yet in the ICU. I'll be there a couple of weeks and will. Um, but it's the basic tenements that we live with. This is hypoxia that they have, so it's not a ventilatory issue. Initially, these patients will come in quite profoundly hypoxic, but yet their lungs are still quite pliable. They're not stiff yet. So uh, it's all about oxygenation, ensuring they've got adequate ventilation as they are, keeping them as comfortable as possible, and depending on what mode of support that we want to use for that. There's been a lot of talk about uh, high-flow nasal cannula, um, uh, BiPAP, CPAP, um, pros, cons. Be interesting to know what what you guys are doing with either of those. Uh, We are using the high-flow nasal oxygen, um, if they can be isolated and if they can be in negative pressure rooms, um, and we're actually proning those people. You know, the physiology of proning makes sense. We do it with bad ARDS, but why not do it when they're still breathing spontaneously? And and it works. It, their oxygenation improves. Um, I don't, we right, currently right now are infectious disease, given that, you know, we don't have a lot of cases right now, so the three in our ICU, they have been, Managing thus far with a basically a protocolized approach to any type of medication for it, and really certainly from what I read, there's not a whole lot that really works apart from supportive care. What about a azithro or chloroquine? Not to talk about it. I don't know. Honestly, it's not. It's not certain. I, I don't know. I defer that to our ID group. Um, they have uh, instituted that in a couple of other retrovirals uh, in their algorithm, um, but I'm not going to debate them about it. It's, it's uh, I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's a very um, great common sense overview of management of this, and it's been, it's been fun reading about it. Like I, I know that the way they look at this uh, um, COVID-19, um, the pathogenesis of it is that. There's an initial uh, viral stage where the virus attacks the uh, type 2 lymphocytes um, at the ACE2 receptors and causes a direct viral induced lung damage. And so mm-hmm. um, patients start off with uh, upper respiratory and then progress to lower respiratory symptoms. And they're, they, they are shedding virus during that time. And then after a while, um, there's a sort of a hyper inflammatory state when, when we um, body's adaptive immune system kicks in and starts fighting off the virus. And then, so you get a secondary type of delayed illness that's more of a uh, ARDS, multi-organ failure type of pattern. Um, and so patients can look like they're getting better, but then suddenly go into um, really renewed respiratory failure and multi-organ failure. Um, so that's, that's interesting because, um, like you mentioned, you know, at the beginning when patients are in the viral phase of this illness, there's no real specific antiviral therapy for it. So the idea is to treat them initially um, prophylactically for uh, community-acquired pneumonia, uh, support mm-hmm. their respiratory status, use high-flow nasal cannula. When, when we first saw these patients, uh, when, we, when we were first receiving them, we, we were worried that they would be very difficult to oxygenate and recruit. But uh, just like you said, that once they're intubated, um, the lungs are not that that stiff, you can actually recruit them with a bit of PEEP, and you can oxygenate them. Um, and then, and then uh, you know, initially we were nervous that 
Um, we shouldn't wake them up too early because of the risk of the secondary inflammatory response, but now we're realizing that we should probably just treat them like any other new medication and try to wake them up and mobilize them and get them going again. Uh, and then if they do develop that hyperinflammatory state, then at that point, you know, you think of doubling down and doing more aggressive support, but then it's still just the basic principles of multi-organ support. And, uh, and nothing, nothing that new or novel like uh, I, I think antivirals uh, like um, oseltamivir have not been shown to to work. Um, there's, uh, there's other um, antivirals that have not yet panned out in, in clinical trials. Uh, hydroxychloroquine has some, I think, some in vitro activity, but only very small clinical experience with that. So, um, and uh, steroids is a big topic too. And I think. Uh, Maybe in that hyperinflammatory state, you could make an argument that steroids might be useful. Um, but uh, I think most people are just using steroids if there's another indication for steroid use, like bad PPG or or yeah. I think that's um, the other thing to remember is that you know if they come in and one they're initially COVID suspect, still all the other regular pathology happens. <laughs> so we would treat that. So having said. Having said that, just as you would, you know, community-acquired pneumonia for your COPD exacerbations, uh, whatever other type of pneumonia they may have, uh, those things still need to be treated. And they can get um, acquired uh, infections as well or super infections yeah, on top is, of their pneumonitis that they have. Um, so, you're, yeah, exactly right with that. Do, do you guys have a, um, a set protocol with us as far as what you have for treatment-wise for your COVID-positive patients, uh, Morad? Or, uh, not that I want to know what it is, per se, but is there somebody that does that, or is it It depends on who's around or who's on yeah. as their uh, institution? Totally. And in fact, uh, it's really interesting. We had two committees that were struck like almost overnight. One was a therapeutics committee to start to review all of these studies that Amir was mentioning to see should we adopt them into our management. And mostly the answer is no to everything. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and then we also we also developed a committee, um, which was kind of like a, uh, a a social media committee that that uh, looked at all of the uh, information coming through different types of networks and uh, emerging studies from the literature. And we, every day we get a report about you know what what's new and what to consider. Like a one page report that comes at the end of the day from that committee. So that's a wow. neat uh, adaptation. So we get, we, I feel like we're getting the latest information, but but uh, a lot of it doesn't, like you guys are saying, it doesn't really change practice uh, uh, that that much. It doesn't shift the needle a huge amount. It still always comes back to the basics. And we're really still early on in this, um, further than you guys are, I think, in BC, as far as the numbers in, in your hospital and just the amount of well, the preparation, you can, you, you, the, the stress is palpable, I mean, honestly, um, throughout most of the hospital. Um, and really, that almost all boils around PPE and the potential of the, or the lack thereof, uh, and how to deal with these patients. Um, and we're not even in the thick of it yet. Yeah. And exactly. so I think that that's, you know, to try to, to keep this communication going and to keep the morale as strong as possible is really challenging. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt, Neil. You know, I think that's, that's true of the whole country and probably the whole world right now. Um, there's no doubt. Let, let, let me ask you guys one more question, which is that 
um, you know, we have a fair number of community surgery uh, partners and, and listeners. So what would you recommend um, either formally or informally, if there is formal agreements or transfer thoughts in your, in your, uh, your regions, if, um, you know, outside of a true emergency, emergent surgery that needs to happen, what would you recommend that the general surgeon in, you know, wherever Timmins or Medicine Hat or, um, you know, I don't know, Williams Lake do, if they encounter in particular some of these patients? I think it depends on, on, on the patient's physiology. If they need the emergent operation, they need the emergent operation and to treat them as COVID positive. I think uh, each institution, uh, no matter how big or small, has been preparing for this. And so hopefully within the OR, there is some sort of standard operating procedure or something that's set up to have a dedicated OR, the team, be able to go through things. I still think, you know, and again, this may be a bit controversial, but I think that it, certainly if we can test, which again has been a big issue, but if we can test perioperatively, then, and we can find out that they're negative, again, knowing the false negative rates and everything there, but if they screen negative, are negative, um, then that, if anything, that takes down the stress level of people, and I think is super important. We shouldn't treat them any differently, treat them the same way, uh, but but that inherently takes a stress down somehow. Yeah, I, I agree, and, and I, I think um, one thing uh, I'm sure it's this way in um, the yeah, Canada too. But we we have uh, different layers of emergency operations command. Like we have hospital level, regional level, and provincial, and um, they all uh, they all coordinate in multiple meetings a day. Um, and in our surgical response to our COVID positive and just, um, you know, emergency surgical conditions could follow a similar type of um, organization network. And uh, like in, in, um, in BC, I mentioned to you guys, we have a, um, a new web-based platform for interaction between surgeons. It's kind of like a Twitter feed. And um, so that, that group has really started to, you know, that platform has started to really become active as uh, people start to trade ideas. And uh, we were hoping to use that platform to even coordinate surgical care between sites, but recognizing that some of the COVID hospitals will get overwhelmed and may not be able to uh, to do urgent surgery. So that, that might be a pathway to distribute the work a bit better. Are, is your plat is is your platform is that reticulum that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is that is super. Neat. Even before COVID, I think that was a really uh, neat platform, and I think that uh, the discussions on Reticulum have been really super, um, super high level and super uh, useful. Um, sort of related to this sort of redeployment, um, managing resources, has there been any discussion at all about redeploying, let's say, residents, for example, or surgeons into ICUs or kind of becoming, uh, you know, undifferentiated physicians to kind of help should, should that need arise? I don't think we're there yet. But has there been any discussion about that? So within our department, we've had that with the, in the Department of Surgery. We felt that we should try to redeploy amongst the division within the department first. So there are divisions that are bigger than others uh, and some of the smaller divisions. Um, in our group, it would say be like vascular surgery, uh, thoracic surgery. Um, 
you know, if, if one or two people get quarantined, that's a big problem. And so we thought that we would try to deploy within the department first. And then, of course, you know, to be more of an undifferentiated physician, as it were, to help out in other areas. Um, it's, you know, I, I don't think we're, we're yet to there to, to say that surgeons have to come, become intensivists and there's a fear that that may become. Those people that have some background within it, of course, are going to get ramped up. You know, the way it's, our system is, certainly the anesthesiologists are much more comfortable than, with the ventilator than, than anybody else, uh, apart from the ICU and, and some eMERGE groups. So that's what we've decided to do so thus far. Yeah, we did the same thing. We, we, brought, uh, we worked really closely with our residency program. Okay. Our residency uh, brought all the residents back to um, some of the big hospitals, and uh, the residents came up with a very innovative um, call schedule that actually makes sure that some of them are rested and off, uh, and then we cycle in every week. We refresh the workforce. Uh, and so that also gives us room to support the ICU. So some of our residents have been seconded to the ICU. Uh, and um, some, of the, some of the surgeons have asked about uh, how to support the ICU, and there are online resources for that, which, uh, which we can give you the link to if anybody wanted a quick crash course in, in how to support the uh, ICU, you know, if this um, pandemic really does escalate as, uh, as it's projected to. And we have pulled, from a resident point of view, have pulled residents back away from community rotations back home, uh, as it were. Um, but we've not pulled our general surgery residents off their other services yet or anything like that. Yeah, the, the blocks have disappeared now, and the, everybody's just on the standard general surgery services. That's fantastic, guys. Any other comments before we wrap this up? I just had a, a question about negative pressure wars because it still comes up a lot. We've sort of put that behind us. Of course, there's data suggesting that we still should, shouldn't. I don't know, but what do you use at your hospital, Murad and Chad, for the COVID-positive patient? Um, we have uh, two negative pressure wars, uh, I think, and uh, we're trying to it goes the uh, COVID positive rings. Um, and then uh, uh, in a, uh, it, this is also relevant in the emergency department. We, uh, we tried to do some resuscitations in the negative, in the true negative pressure rooms in the emergency department. It was technically very difficult to do. So actually, we're converting a trauma base to negative pressure um, at the moment. Yeah, our, our experience was very similar. We tried to. Uh, this past week, do a gunshot and a stab uh, in the isolation rooms, and it was not physically possible to do that. It went; uh, it, the patients did fine, but it was challenging. So we've uh, we've converted one of our four trauma bays. Um, similarly, um, we've certainly operated on a number of suspected COVID patients on the emergency side of things. Yeah, the past, over the past ten days, and we have not been our, in our negative pressure rooms at all. Um, so that, that debate does continue uh, locally in Calgary. So you um, do have negative pressure ORs, though? It is possible, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah, we don't. And I think most, at least when I talk to the most of the groups across Ontario, we don't really have negative pressure ORs, per se. They're, they're relatively negative in that the core is slightly higher pressure than the OR itself, but all the ORs within the OR is positive pressure, as we mentioned earlier. Interesting. 
Well, to your, to your point, point, Neon, you, and you described it quite well. I think that's really the message um, that's been going across the country in most, most ORs and most, most systems is that uh, the, the positive pressure that you run with the, with the you know, circular air uh, scrubbing of the air in, in and out over the course of the hour should be okay. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's probably true, um, although there's certainly um, some strong opinions otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know um, where this would go in, but uh, in, in going back to just a, a note about the resuscitation of patients, uh, I think it's uh, it's important to remember that uh, not to over resuscitate them. Um, I, I think yeah. many of us are going to be involved with uh, resuscitation of these patients in different contexts. And um, sure. yeah, and what we know is about about this uh, sorry the, this um, COVID nineteen is that. Uh, they don't need a lot of fluid, uh, and uh, if they you might if they develop a secondary sepsis, as Neil talked talked about, you can judiciously fluid resuscitate them. But the idea would be always to do so very judiciously, use ultrasound guidance um, to assess volume size, and just try to keep them on the dry side, um, even if it means uh, giving them a bit of pressure. Uh, the idea is to try not to exacerbate the viral pneumonitis gas exchange issues by also creating pulmonary demand. And, yeah. and some, of the, some of the patients get this myocarditis, which could predispose them to CHS, and it, which would make them even more fluid intolerant. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Morad. I mean, the, the, the other corollary issue is, is who to intubate uh, and who not to and when to do that. And I think mm-hmm. we've, we've certainly seen a bunch of over-intubations and a bunch of wet patients um, up, up front, and so I, you know, not not to blame any particular subspecialty, but just to point out that our critical care colleagues and many of our general surgeons that have critical care training um, should probably be involved in a in a in a collegial way a lot earlier, or certainly very early, uh, to help make those decisions. So no particular frontline physician or or nurse or anybody feels like they're out on an island. Not not sure as to what to do. I think we're all available and uh, and ready to help. Yeah, like, like we are so worried about these patients because um, uh, some of them present with silent hypoxemia, so they they look okay, but they're back in the eighty. Yeah, that's uh, a really and good then, point. Yeah, and then you put oxygen on them, and they don't come up right away. Uh, and then they also have been known to sort of deteriorate quickly. So, and then if you have to crash intubate somebody who's on airborne precautions, it becomes technical issue. Uh, so I think people were really focused on early intubation of these patients to try to avoid that quick drop-off in oxygen saturation, to avoid oxygen debt, and also to avoid uncontrolled intubation. Um, and I think that in principle, it is good to think about early intubation, but I think we're moving towards a more nuanced approach, which is that if you can sustain them with high-flow nasal cannula and continuous oxygen saturation monitoring, uh, you might be able to get some of these patients through without incubating them and creating all the downstream iatrogenic mm-hmm. problems that Chad, you mm-hmm. mentioned, fluid overload, aerotrauma, yeah. et cetera. Well, where are you, you know, I, I think uh, it's hard to fit everything on a on a podcast about uh, you what, what you might want to know <laughs> in terms of a ventilator. I, I, I'm just going on a limb here. But uh, where would you guys recommend going for resources and um, staying up to date for let's say the the community surgeon who may you know theoretically be called upon to 
at least sit and watch a ventilator, if not be actively managing COVID-19 patients in the ICU? Uh, you know, I think when we start to double and triple our ICU capacity and start putting ventilated patients on the wards, it is possible that non-intensivists and non-anesthesiologists will have to run these teams. And uh, it's happening in, in Italy and uh even in Australia, I heard that surgeons are volunteering to um, to help, and so I think I think general surgeons and surgeons in general um, are, would would be great at this. Uh, I think most of the most of the patients will probably be on high flow nasal cannula. Uh, some may be on invasive mechanical ventilation, and there are some online resources to that. I just was noticing this morning that um, the SCCM has a um, has a crash course, a primer in critical care for non-intensive care physicians. And so, Chad, you said we could provide a link to that. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Amir has kindly um, uh, puts up resources as the show notes uh, for all the listeners um, in, the, in the podcast links. And so he'll do that again for all of you. Yeah, I agree with Murad. There, there's there are some great podcasts that break it down and make it very easy. Um, human resources will be taxed. Um, you know, a not a person who's not too familiar or comfortable with the vents, best human resource is the respiratory therapist. So even just hanging out with a the respiratory therapist now, just to say, what's that button? What do I need to do? What's this? That's probably going to be worth your salt as well, just to do that now before um, the resources, both the human and physical, get stretched. And, and I think, and I think, in a well-organized system, nobody will be really left. Like I think the teams will have sort of a hierarchical structure where there's the yeah. intensivist and and physiologist and the surgeons, and they're all kind of working together, even though they're sort of distributed. So I think within our teams, there's so much depth and resilience that we'll be able to support each other. And again, that's another benefit of of this crisis is we're learning how to incorporate the expertise of other specialties into our work. So. I think we all have a lot to bring to the table. Um, if the pandemic expands further, we'll, you know, I think uh, we'll be able to benefit a lot from the wisdom of, our, of, of all of our colleagues. Fantastic. Guys, thank you very much for doing this. Um, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, it's always amazing to see what Canadian surgeons of all different subspecialties can do in, in times of need. It's a, it's, a, it's a great group to be part of. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.